Hey, Natalia, do you have your passport? I have it right here. I can't wait to actually go somewhere. I've missed traveling so much. I know. Welcome to season three of the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Ajiko, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face MBC alone. In today's episode, we travel around the world to learn about how others are living and advocating for people living with MBC. We travel virtually to Canada, Japan, Kuwait, Egypt, Australia, Portugal, Kenya, Nigeria, and the UK. In some ways, the pandemic has helped us use tech better to continue connecting across the world or even across our own towns since we've been in isolation for so long. As we begin to inch our way out of the pandemic. I know, it's so true. Travel continues to be so limited or more challenging at the very least. So we wanted to travel anyway and meet some of the inspiring NBC advocates and leaders who are working to make a difference for people living with this disease. I think it's great to hear about what the challenges are elsewhere and maybe how we can even work together to break those challenges down everywhere. All right, let's get to it. So first up, I get to speak to one of Canada's leading NBC advocates, Vesna Zikote, by taking a puddle jumper to Ottawa, Canada. My name is Vesna Zikote, and I live in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. My story starts when I was 38 years old. I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, stage two. At that time, I had all the usual treatments of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. I was at a low risk to recur, and I was even discharged to a wellness program beyond cancer. But right around that time, I started to have unusual symptoms that couldn't be explained. The worst of it was just this nagging little cough that I couldn't shake. And that cough got progressively worse. And being a youngish person with this history, it took some time to be diagnosed. It took about six months. By that time, when I was finally diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, the cancer was quite advanced and I had numerous tumors across both of my lungs. The cancer had spread into the lymph nodes in my neck and had also spread to the vertebrae in my neck. My prognosis was quite poor. And at that time, I changed oncologists feeling like I needed someone that I felt like I could really really trust in this circumstance. And that oncologist put me on a treatment protocol that he felt gave me the best chance. And really, it took a leap of faith. I didn't know anything about any treatments. And I started treatment the very same day that I met him. And I'm very fortunate to say that I'm still on that same first line of treatment from just over four years ago. So we know that it was the right treatment. My cancer is stable right now. I've never been NED or no evidence of disease at the cancer. The tumors are always in my lungs, but I'm generally stable and I generally feel quite well. In those early days of being diagnosed with MBC, I went online and just tried to find anything I could about living with this terminal diagnosis. And I found solace in other people who were living with MBC, sharing their stories, talking about the power that patients have in sharing their story and trying to create change. And at that time, I felt like I have nothing to lose by sharing my story. I started to write and just post it on my Facebook page. And from there, connected with different organizations, decided to go to Philadelphia because there was an NBC conference that people were talking about. And of course, that's where we first met. And from there, it just continued. 
And yes, when we met, one of the things I wondered about was, do they have conferences like that in Canada? And so what is the landscape for metastatic breast cancer conferences and ways for advocates to collaborate and be together in Canada? There isn't a, a large MBC movement cause in Canada. It's such a big country with a much smaller population. And our regulations as far as how healthcare is provided is directed by the province. So it really depends on where you live, on what the issues that you might be facing. Rethink Breast Cancer is one of the organizations that provide support across Canada. But when they're trying to tackle issues, it is province by province. So yeah, Health Canada will give the green light to uh, a drug like Ibrans to say, yes, that it is safe for, and that it's an effective treatment. And then negotiations would then go to provinces to decide what is going to be funded, how is it going to be funded or, or provided, in what circumstance or capacity will it be provided to the patient. What's the experience for a lot of your friends living with NBC in seeking a second opinion? I don't think getting a second opinion is as common in Canada as it is in, in other countries. Typically, it's you stay with the oncologist and the decisions that he or she is making for you. Only in cases where you really feel that there isn't a connection or a relationship, something's not working, then you go through the process of either finding a new oncologist. So how is it different between the breast cancer community and the metastatic breast cancer community? Because you are members of both, actually, right? I feel like there's still very much a separation between the early stage community and the metastatic community. There is still definitely that that fear there. Many of us who are living with metastatic diseases, it's the worst fear that you can have when you've been diagnosed with an early stage. And so there are many stories of people that I know who have felt alienated or just didn't feel like they fit in with a community that was all stages. I feel very fortunate. We, we just mentioned this group called OMG in Ottawa Monthly Gatherings, where um, I connected with these women when I was diagnosed with early stage cancer. And even when I was diagnosed metastatic, they have been some of my greatest cheerleaders and supporters through this. So I've been very fortunate in, in not feeling excluded from that group. And I continue to work very much with them in an effort to try and bring our stages of the, the breast cancer community as a whole together. I think that's how we, we're going to get the momentum and the energy that we need to really try and make change in treatment options and overall prognosis for MBC. Rethink Breast Cancer has done an incredible job with the Ally campaign that they did last year, I believe, before the pandemic. What's been the outcome, in your opinion? The thinking of it was that we needed more than just people who were living with MBC to try and further the cause of improving treatments and diagnosis. What typically happens when you're living with this diagnosis that gets worse and worse over time, there's a lot of energy to try and create change at the beginning or while your treatment is stable. And then understandably, as things start to change, treatments get more difficult. You simply just don't have the energy or the time to focus on doing more advocacy. And that's where we need allies, uh, people who are affected by or care about others who have MBC to also step in and say, these issues are important. These are things that need to change to make it easier to access treatment or we need more clinical trials or whatever it is. And so that's the thinking behind the MBC Ally campaign. Recruiting allies has been 
harder than I think we had initially anticipated. The hope was to get 10,000 allies within a few months, and it's taken more in terms of years. But we still just keep going with each campaign. It's there to be an NBC ally. For Rethink is leverage that they can then go to their partners and say, we have 10,000 people who have signed up to say they care about these issues. And when you're you're talking to change makers in government or in pharma, those numbers, they matter. And so that's the thinking behind having allies. So tell us a little bit about your experience with access to care. I know you are a nurse, an RN, and so you are a medical professional. But as we know here in the United States, being a medical professional does not always equate to exceptional care always or not being lost in the cracks. It happens even to experienced medical professionals. But what about you? In my case, I would say I'm very fortunate with the stability that I mentioned earlier in that I haven't had to change my treatment since I started. I feel like my first little piece of advocacy was for myself in deciding that I wasn't going to continue with my original oncologist and that I felt like I needed a change. For me, that was a pivotal point in my life. I truly feel that I would probably be dead had I not made that decision for myself. I chose an oncologist who was forward thinking and chose a treatment that he felt like had the best option for me. But the worry is always there that when that time comes, not if, but when, what treatment is going to be available to me? Is it the treatment that is most likely to give me success for a number of months or years again? And if not, how do I get access to that treatment? Is it by um, doing funding for myself? Is it by traveling to another country to get into a clinical trial? Those worries are there. So I haven't had to take action on them yet, but that concern is there. And that's a worry that I think people who maybe haven't had the same stability as I have are living that right now, where if they're not having stability, what clinical trials are available to them in Canada, there tends to be fewer available. So do you have the option to travel? Do you have the funds to to do that sort of thing? Those are all concerns that we live with on top of living with an incurable diagnosis. You've mentioned your OMG group, which is the Ottawa Monthly Gatherings, and your work with Rethink Breast Cancer. Where do you find your support beyond those two groups? Still, I would say quite a bit online, on social media. I do a fair amount of fundraising over the years as well. That just keeps me busy. And in some ways, it's you just think of the disease just beyond yourself and your experience. And that kind of just keeps me going as well. Where would you tell friends and family that say, we really want to donate in support of metastatic breast cancer in Canada? Tell us, Vesna, where should we put our money? So I did do the run for the cure and raised quite some money for the Metastatic Futures Fund. But I would say my heart is with the work that Rethink Breast Cancer does. And so I would support any fundraising that goes. They have a specific NBC fund as well, where those funds are directed to NBC-related issues. I was with, or I am with, a fundraiser that a friend of mine started a few years ago called Turning the Page on Cancer, which is fundraising for NBC-related issues. And this is the second year in a row that the recipient is going to be Rethink's NBC fund again. So in every country these days, and it's a long overdue conversation followed hopefully by action, but we care a lot here at the podcast about disparities in healthcare and how it affects 
individuals living with MBC beyond just the brutality of the disease itself, just there are racial disparities in the United States that impact healthcare distribution and treatments for people. What's the landscape for disparities and addressing those disparities in Canada? I think that is generally a new movement as well in Canada. And again, I feel like Rethink is at the forefront of addressing it and acknowledging it. They started a new project last year with a fellow NBC advocate. Her name is Michelle O'Dwayne, and it's called Uncovered. And it was a series of photos and a project that showed NBC scars on people of color. And it, it was received very well, and they're doing a second iteration of it this year. People are starting to talk about it more and more, and Rethink, I think, is really, you know, taking the bull by the horns and addressing it. What would be on the top of your list to change about the situation in Canada? It's more treatment options and access to treatments not being so difficult. So, that I wouldn't have to worry about, do I have to pay for something out of my pocket or am I going to have to travel to access something that those pieces were out of the equation would be a wonderful thing. Thank you so much, Vesna. Next, Anne Woodward takes a red eye to speak to Aiko Brody from Japanese Share. She talks about her advocacy work in Japan and in the U.S. Hi, I am Aiko Brody. I am a founder of Japanese Share. I came into Share 2013 ever since I am supporting people who speak Japanese at the Share. We hold a lot of meetings and educational programs. And I am also a survivor of breast cancer for 20 years. I was diagnosed at 2001 in the midst of 9-11. And I must say, I wasn't taking care of myself emotionally because I really didn't know how to express myself during this crisis we are facing. And people are very sad in the city, in the world. And I didn't know where to break my news. I didn't know where and when and who to break my news. So I put a cap on my emotion. And of course, it came out as uh, not good. <laughs> But when I came in to share and when I listened to people who speak about their what they're going through, I literally, I cried with them because it hit my spot. And I slowly started releasing how I should have been treated. And I want to heal with them. And it sounds like such a cliche, but that's the way I healed myself. And now I'm here 20 years later. I think I'm in a very calm place listening to them and I became the person who can guide them. And also, I think that everybody has a different way of healing. And share gives a one way. Education is to everybody. To join the support group is not the only way. That's I found that. But whoever being going through this needs to find some tool to face actually happen to you in your life. And when you don't find that, you become another person like me. Took me 20 years to absolutely heal this emotion. Because mm -hmm. doctor can heal your scar very quickly with a very 
medication it's dreamed of today is available, but the scar you got in your heart, emotional scar, is something doctor can't heal. How did you find support and how did you find Share and come to create Japanese Share? I dove in back to work after my chemotherapy and I started working in a big corporation. I pretended like nothing ever happened to me. Then Lehman Shock came and I got laid off. And when I didn't need to go to work, I, I found myself, I lost my breast and I lost my job and doing the treatment, I lost my mother and I grieved none of them. And I was in panic mode and I was looking for my place I can claim. And I am worthy of being in this place. And this Japanese, small Japanese breast cancer group approached me saying, how would you like to lead this group? So I didn't go into this meeting space as, as a please support me. I said, I'm going to support you. I stubborn as I am. I didn't ask for help. And I became the supporter without myself not being healed. And so I dove in as a supporter and then I was looking for place to meet. Then I found a share. And I called up on a share helpline and explained my situation and they took me in right away. And they trained me to become a facilitator and helpline coordinator. And that's how it started. What are some of the challenges navigating our healthcare system when you don't speak English? Oh, it is almost impossible. It is a strong word, but it is. First of all, sometimes I pretend to be that person to make appointment. I ask her name and uh, birthday and a uh, copy of the back and front of the health card, the insurance card, and then I'll make appointment for them. And also, of course, I tell them to make sure, get the translator. But I found out that it's not happening throughout the U.S. Certain areas, certain states, it's hard for them to provide a translator. That was supplies for me because I am so spoiled. We are very protected. But supplies as in, in California, some hospitals, I asked this hard question, do you have a translator? And they said, let me ask and come back and say, sorry, we don't. We come here, Japanese people come here most likely by themselves. When doctor come in on the phone and doctor says, "Is do you have any question? Family members, do you have any question? And then I'll say, as if something is not clear, I will say, what about this and what about that? And even sometimes translator is present. Translator is to translate the words that doctor and patient, none of their opinions are allowed. I come in as an expert because I went through it. So you're almost like a translator advocate. Yes, exactly. And they're just like a setting there and whoever navigate them through to the room and get a chemotherapy or a radiation and, and can't speak their own language to communicate. It must be so fearful and traumatic. Think about it. We can say anything. God damn it. We can say that in English. They don't, they can't can't even express themselves. So you have a dedicated support group for metastatic patients. Yes. Actually, yes, national now. And last week, actually, I had one group that suits for people who live in the United States and also the who lives in the Japan time because we have a 13 to 17 hours time difference. So we had that and there was a few people came in from Japan. And surprisingly, I said, why do you want to join the United States meeting? And it was very surprised to me. It's the culture. They feel they don't want to be seen in the Japanese people in 
mindset setting. So they thought as far as comes to the United States, maybe they don't have to expose themselves to the Japanese people who live in Japan. Do you think you will continue to do a metastatic support group with both countries at the same time? Yes, I like to do that because I feel there is a meaning to it. Just because I try to uh, fill in the gap between a United States, this free country, I came in to share when where already ground is set, settled. We are allowed to do this and the patient has this rights and we are entitled to do this and it's nothing to shame the of. I stepped into this ground, but in Japan, they don't have that yet. And I have a feeling by giving this platform, hopefully they will learn, oh, this can be done and it is okay to be myself and express my true emotion. And it is hard to take in, hard to face what is happening to your life. And even so, the people in Japan, they are still trying to keep themselves in inside of their box. And it is a hard thing to do. And I don't know how they get cured emotionally. Can you talk a little bit more about to an audience that may not be familiar at all with Japanese culture, what it's like to go through something like this in Japan? Japanese has a national health insurance and everybody do get a fair share of medical care. But the problem is they have a law saying that even if you got diagnosed with this and that, you are entitled to stay in, stay working. But in the atmosphere of this inside of working place, it's totally different different. First, they call us the people with this illness. It's like the weakest link. And I'm like, duh, one in two become the weakest link. How are you going to manage this society? Keep going. They have to know how to utilize us because we are somehow get stronger through this illness. And people who are healthy still has this notion of when you become diagnosed with a cancer, somehow you're not normal anymore. So doctor feels that they said everything they need to say. And the patient always feel that I wasn't, I doctor looked so busy. Uh, he never looked at my eyes. His eyes were glued to the computer screen and said, come back. And I didn't have a chance to talk about how I feel or what was my need was such a date. And they are not connected. And especially the clinical trial in Japan, because Japan has so many pharmaceutical, and yet they're having a harder time patients to join the clinical trial. And I was talking to doctor and also I was talking to the patient and that doctor said, no, 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 we explained enough to the patient. Then I go to the patient and say, what do you think about a clinical trial? And, and one lady said, yeah, I did that. But doctor took me into the small room and started explaining in a very small voice, like a secret. And I was like, whoa, it's, it's so doctor feels they are explaining to the patient well enough so they can join. But a patient doesn't feel that way. So to me, it's my, it's my mission is to close the gap between doctor and patient in Japan. We give a seminar. I, we call it a workshop because seminar to me is one way. And I ask doctors and specialists not to wear suits or white gown. I came up with the idea is the young doctors who come into this 
country as a post doctor and they're looking for the place they can express their experience back in Japan as a doctor or a researcher in the United States. And they're more than willing to help us. And I'm encountering with so many wonderful doctors and specialists. And also those young doctors introduced me to other doctors back in Japan. And our seminar, our workshop often gather over 300 people throughout the country, throughout the United States, the Japan, and also the world. What do you think some of the misconceptions about metastatic breast cancer are in the Japanese community? I think People who live in Japan with a metastatic breast cancer are more isolated. Isolation is triggering a depression. Mm-hmm. So as long as they have support around them and as long as they can express their emotion in a true way, nothing is sugar-coated and they'll be safe. And they're spiritually very up in every day. What do you hope to do with Japanese share in the next year or two? Hopefully, People who live in the United States, everybody knows us. <laughs> everybody gets to know us. And the reason why I've been doing this for th- this many years is because people keep coming. And I truly believe that people need us. And so I'm trying to reach out many people as possible, many families as possible. And hopefully this is going to be metastasized to Japan. Thank you, Aiko, for all the work you do on behalf of Japanese Share. Next up, we get to meet Dr. Rania Azmi, who operates in Kuwait and in Egypt with a goal to advocate throughout the Middle East. This is Dr. Rania Azmi. I have been a patient advocate for the last 10 years, especially for breast cancer primary and with a focus on the metastatic breast cancer. It's very close to me, family, friends. So I started with my mom and, and friends in different countries. I have been a world traveler, in my career, women empowerment advocate and youth empowerment. And then when cancer became in the radar, I said, this worthy of my efforts and time. And I started as just a a personal crisis because it was in my close circle. And my aim was to support them with information and knowledge that can a little bit help them. That's what I can do because I was trained as a researcher, although this is in a different field. And then I untapped information that should be accessible to everyone, especially in my part of the world which wasn't the case. I had to go to many conferences in the States, uh, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, Susan Kuman, just to mention a few names in San Antonio with ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And in Europe, there is a flagship also conference for advanced breast cancer called ABC. Uh, and actually all this advocacy efforts uh, resulted in starting and co-founding a cancer association called FADIA Survive and Thrive. We are a member of the UICC, Union for International Cancer Control, and the Advanced Breast Cancer Consensus Conference, which later on became the ABC Global Alliance. So the way I started and the way things developed organically to run the current cancer association, our aim from the beginning is to support the patients. And it's so frustrating for me as someone who is trained as a researcher, because I know that we can do better as a cancer community. Thank you so much, Dr. Rania. Tell me a little bit about your region in particular and what you see as the unique challenges of the countries in your region and how they address advanced breast cancer. Absolutely. Let me get a step back. Primary breast cancer is a huge taboo. Anything related to the world cancer in Arabic, it's a taboo. 
it's uh, it's always referred to as an evil disease. People, even healthy ones, not the one with cancer, wouldn't dare to say saratan like cancer. They always say the evil disease in the Arabic translation for that. Most probably for metastatic breast cancer, they are elderly women, mothers or grandmothers. And in the Arab culture, they are very protecting. So I, I, I don't like to say inaccurate statistics, but a majority of these patients would, would really be very protective for their uh, children, for their families, and they would keep the, the news of the disease to themselves. They would even go to appointments by themselves. There is a, a big proportion of patients like that. There are other proportions who are young women with metastatic breast cancer, and the picture is, it gets even more complicated. Uh, and I don't like to generalize, but some of the new couples, the husband might leave because it's a huge shock instead of helping. And then others, they would help. So different discrepancies, but all in all, there is a huge stigma. But here, I think we got the lion gate of A, stigma, B, misconceptions about the disease itself, and C, we get new drugs, uh, extremely expensive compared to the average income. Plus, it's not there, there were no clinical trials done on the specific types of genes in this part of the world. It's all done internationally in different countries and then imposed because there's no other choice, basically, especially in the targeted therapies for metastatic breast cancer. And then when the patient comes with different side effects, the doctor says this research or this clinical trial refers that these are acceptable casualties or acceptable side effects. So you need to tolerate it because there's no really other choice. So these are the sort of burden in, in this part of the world. And I think some of, of these uh, challenges are shared internationally as well. But it's really very sad, frustrating, and, and certainly more needs to be done in this regard. I want to just talk about that a little bit longer here. With Arabic culture uh, stigmatizing cancer as the evil disease, does that impact recruitment into research? Is it a career path in medicine that is looked down upon because it, cancer is the evil disease? There is a, a huge change which happened in the last 10 years since I started and five years since 2012 and then the last five years. So I, if I have it as two uh, time periods, huge significant improvement in how things are run. So there are the, the doctors in this part of the world observing very closely the guidelines. They are part of it. And there are female and male oncologists. My issues as a patient advocate, that is, I can, I can claim that they are shared by other patient advocates around the world when we convene in one of the international conferences that oncologists on their own there are issues related to the communication. And I have published some abstracts and, and research in, in this regard. And it's it, the gap in communication, the gap in power, the gap in knowledge is huge. And it's increasing exponentially in the Middle East. Oncologists are highly qualified and very well aware of the disease complications and guidelines and how to treat it. But at the other side of the phone, you have the patients in here. If we are talking about older generations, most probably they don't have access to latest information because they are in English and they read Arabic only. And even if they are educated in different fields, they wouldn't make sense of it because they were not trained in the acronyms to be used with oncologists. Not to mention that oncologists doesn't have enough time to explain everything. But at the time that we don't have sophisticated or mature 
patient advocacy groups to play that role. So I, I am trying to say there is a stigma for the public, not in the healthcare community. They are well aware of what's happening, but there is a gap in power and it impacts the perceived, and I will highlight the perceived quality of life, but not all the population are the same. Stigma, when I highlighted it, it's not only with the patient's community, it's with the public. That's why at Saudi Survive and Thrive, we try to do public events, not don't talk much about cancer. We talk about prevention. We talk about what should be the aspects of quality of life that should be taken care of for healthy people and also for people with cancer, because it wouldn't cure them to sleep earlier and eat more veggies and de-stress. Do you have a linkage with early stage breast cancer allies and individuals who are living with metastatic disease or advanced disease? Is that something that Fadia Survive and Thrive also tries to nurture? Yes, we tried several times, but not in the typical ways or traditional ways of doing these support groups by having the two patients, because sometimes, again, because of some cultural uh, inheritance, it can be counterproductive. In Arabic culture, is there a stigma around end of life? Absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the most sensitive issues. And let's face it, even as normal human beings, there is nothing that would prepare someone to face their end of life, even without the disease that nobody dare talk about. And the way it's handled is way too late. And the, the way to talk about it is one key word or two words, palliative care. So palliative care stigmatized as you are free to die as a patient, which is another huge stigma Again, I learned in that journey the hard way, thanks to my mom, God bless her in paradise. I lost her last year, but she was the biggest supporter for the association. And Padia is her name, and it's chosen by other board members. We are from four countries, Germany, Switzerland, Kuwait, and Egypt. What about access to care? What does that look like? It's one of the most important also issues here. Access to care, there are some discrepancies among countries. So not all the countries in the Middle East would be the same. So in a country like Egypt, something like metastatic cancer wasn't covered by government insurance until recently. In countries like the Gulf states, there are some discrepancies related to access to care for the expat community, but it's covered, this gap in access to care is covered by charity organizations trying to provide uh, specific uh, targeted therapies or expensive drugs that are not naturally insured for the expat. It's mostly accessible to the national, which is could be normal in some countries and unacceptable in other countries. So for example, patients can go through a process which is very rigorous to get access to the drug, similar as if they are applying for a loan for a new house or a car, which you can relate. It's a, this is a drug prescribed by a oncologist. So it's not a luxurious one and it has huge side effects. It doesn't matter if it costs 5,000 US dollar a month because the average income or salaries in these countries are known never would be covering that amount of money. Nobody can afford that amount from CEOs to not to mention like really lower grade types of employment. Given your background in research and just your extensive experience prior to your advocacy in breast cancer, you mentioned the issue around lack of research for individuals who 
are of Arabic descent. What are you and Nadia Survive and Thrive able to do to address this clear disparity that's happening at the research level for advanced breast cancer? What we can do at this level is to advocate, and it's not only us. I am aware that other organizations, including from the medical community, by the way, are trying to push the agenda for big pharma companies to have a proportion of the clinical trials from the Middle East. And what we discovered, actually, in this journey in Fatty Survive and Thrive, trying to address this issue, that somewhere, someone looking, they have the grant, they have the finance for their clinical trials, and they were dying for someone from the Middle East to have the balance between different races in, in their clinical trial, but they couldn't find because of some challenges related to logistics and others. And on the other end, you have scientists in this part of the world dying to find finance to do clinical trials according to the best practices and what's imposed by FDA and other regulatory authorities. So you have these disparities. There is finance, but you cannot find participants and you have participants and researchers, but they cannot access finance. How to bridge that gap? We are trying to do so by being accessible to different uh, organizations and try to introduce them to each other. But timing is, is key. Thank you for that. I want to thank you, Dr. Rania Azmi, for joining us here on the podcast. I also wanted to acknowledge and say how sorry I am for the loss of your mother, Fadia, and I love that you've honored her memory in such a beautiful way. We hop over to Australia and speak to Rod Ritchie about NBC perspective from an Australian. And we talk about his advocacy work with Project Lead and male breast cancer. Thanks for having me. So I joined the club in 2014 and I was a bit of a shock because, gee, men don't get breast cancer, do they? However, my mum had breast cancer and died about age 40. I should have perhaps been more aware or read up on it. As with all diagnoses, you face them as you come to them. And so I went through the treatment that most women go through, really, having chemo, starting with chemo because it was an inflammatory breast cancer, stage 3B, and um, moving on to mastectomy. And of course, um, just a single mastectomy because they then generally don't do a double with men. So following that was radiation. And I think my oncologist described it as throwing the kitchen sink at it. And that was a good description because, you know, as we all do here, I'm sure I uh, understand the treatment can be pretty brutal, but it, it didn't really affect me that much. So then I went on to tamoxifen again, which women know particularly well. Generally, it's one of the hormone blockers. And so that's was seven years ago. I'm still on tamoxifen. I'm doing well. I haven't had a recurrence. I should just quickly add that two years after the breast cancer, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and treated for that with a prostatectomy. So I'm one of those rare birds um, with a prostatectomy and a mastectomy. Tell us about how you um, started getting into advocacy in Australia. And I know that you have allyship with the metastatic community because you were part of Project LEAD, right? Yes, and, and indeed, I'd have to say my good friend Victoria, who you all know there, and I went to the Project Lead in 2018, and that's such a fantastic boost, and you meet so many people, but I found that it was a bit of a, an issue waiting to happen for me. I was in IT, and I had a business, uh, websites and marketing. I was a book publisher and a writer, and so I had a lot of skills that just transferred very nicely and it came at a good time if cancer can come at a good time and I thought 
Well, with social media, that's really the way to, to join with so many people. And I have to say that uh, I'm better known overseas, probably through Twitter and maybe through Facebook than I am in Australia because while let's talk about the US, they get maybe 2,600 men each year diagnosed with breast cancer in Australia. It's maybe 150. When you're a man and you've got breast cancer, it's just breast cancer. And it's, it feels the same as anyone else has got breast cancer. So I, I think I felt also that the pink charities, I'll call them the pink charities, are very keen to promote pinkness and it's a female disease, but they weren't really picking up that it can also be a male disease. And that's what really got me going. It really upset me a bit. I thought, no, this isn't good enough. And so I've been working away for these seven years and advocating for patients and also promoting the fact that men can get breast cancer. And I've had great success, I have to say. Nobody nobody wants to exclude men willingly. I think it just became convenient to market for the purposes of publicity, to market the disease as, as affecting women. So I was really pleased that I found a niche and, yeah, in Australia and, and internationally through especially through Twitter, where I've got a lot of followers and a lot of medical followers. Tell us about the access to healthcare in your country and how that may have impacted you. Okay, so healthcare in this country is a dual system. There's a public system and a private system. And the private system is, has people with health insurance. It's not, a, it's not a universal compulsory health insurance like in the States that um, you have with your work, but this is, you just might have health insurance or you might not. People that don't have health insurance generally receive a similar treatment, but perhaps not as timely. In other words, you get into a bit of a queue, although it, the public health system here is very good. And I live in a sort of semi-rural area and really a lot of the people that are in the private system being having their neighbours who might be in the public system seeing the same surgeon, the same medical oncologist. But one thing that is a bit different, the drugs, they come out all the time, don't they, for metastatic people particularly, and they're a bit slower to approve them. It's a bit like in Canada. And I, I had private health insurance. I think I had. Uh, you get a choice of your doctors more, and that may be a good thing. But as I said, in this area, the same specialists are treating everybody. So <laughs> Indigenous people are be, may or may not be in employment. If they are, they could have even have private health insurance. But if they're in a lower income bracket, they'll just be treated like white people or any people. They're just in a pool of people. They will get full treatment. They will get surgery. They will get chemotherapy. They won't have to pay for that chemotherapy. They will get radiation. They won't have to pay for that radiation. So they'll get basic treatment with zero dollars. Now, that might be different to the States. They, they do get treatment and they're not billed for it. Not the hospital, not the doctors, not the surgeons. What I was curious about, because you have healthcare that's provided for free, or it can be, what is it like to access second opinions? Is that something commonly practiced in Australia? Good question. Also, the I'm not sure second opinions are really encouraged in the basic care. I think I think probably. It is possible and and probably without a cost to, for the second provider. I think um, that's possibly, I have to get back to you on that, but I believe that's the case. <clears throat> I think in a lot of um, instances, there's, there's not a lot of surgeons working or a lot of medical oncologists around and, and they all know each other anyway. So getting a second opinion, I think that's a sort of security blanket for people, isn't it? I, I think we need to empower patients more. It's easier to sit back. Neither of us are just sitting back waiting for things to happen. <laughs> We're on the, on the internet day and night probably. But um, 
I think everybody needs to understand that the information is out there and there's so much good material. People used to say, oh, don't go to Dr. Google on all this sort of stuff. Well, I say start at Dr. Google because a lot of stuff you're not going to get anywhere else. And admittedly, back in the day, the indexing wasn't as good, but I have to say right now, all those medical search results come up that are pretty good in the top bracket. Would you agree with me there with your, your little bit of research? Yeah, I do. And I, and I just find that while it's very scary to Google you know, symptoms and what possibly might happen when you're diagnosed. And I keep telling people every time we interview them that we all seem like experts and we're not, but it just is having that information is powerful information to bring in because you have expectations. You might be able to ask a doctor a question that you wouldn't have normally asked. And you're more aware of what type of treatments or if you do fall into a clinical trial, because all of that can be very overwhelming when you're at the doctor's office and they're trying to explain something to you. Yes. And and I always say, take someone with you to the the medical interviews because your mind goes blank as it does when oh, you hear yes. the diagnosis. And but, but just keep on the case. Like, seriously, we're responsible for our own health. If we're just outsourcing it all the time, we're not even in the loop. And I've got a general physician who's very good at it. He can't answer a question. He'll just get on the internet in front of me and say, let's see what that, get the answer. They're not, they go to medical um, school, might've been 10 or 15 years ago. That's 10 or 15 years they've missed. Now in Australia, what is the perception of metastatic breast cancer? Well, I think I'll go back to calling them the pink charities. They play down often stage four patients. And I think they believe that it might interfere with fundraising, pink fun runs and having fun and wearing pink things because there really are two streams of patients there, um, the early stage patients and the metastatic patients. And I think there's not really enough attention paid to metastatic patients in Australia. I, I feel they are pushed into a bundle and left to their own devices and I wouldn't say that was universally true but I do get that feeling and I don't read as much about it and I think by promoting breast cancer as a fun fundraising disease then there's a sort of disconnect there I don't know if you'd agree with that but I, I just feel we need to do more for metastatic patients and be more supportive and push for more research because that's the version of the disease that kills you if somebody was asking you where do I go in Australia for support what would you say so there's a couple of big charities breast cancer network Australia BCNA is a big one and that's googleable and National Breast Cancer Foundation which concentrates more on research the Breast Cancer Network Australia has a forum which people can get on and ask questions and they they do a lot of fundraising and the other group does more fundraising just for research there's plenty of advocating for all patients but I just as I said before there I just feel metastatic patients are, seem to be a little bit less less dealt with which i think is unfortunate how has the social media landscape impacted what you're able to do and globalize the disease in, in a way and where do you see that really benefiting and what do you think are some of the challenges for the community in that space social media has revolutionized discussion on all diseases all cancers and we, we we're in the breast cancer space lots of blogs lots of facebook groups lots of twitter groups the handles on our hashtag bcsm and it's really amazing the amount of information that um, gets put through and it's quite overwhelming. I think it's, as far as challenges go, I'm not sure the challenges are great, perhaps sifting through the information, but once you know the people in the field and you're on Twitter and you get to know the people that follow you, the people that you follow and you comment, 
And there's just some amazing people there. I can't believe it. And, and using social media very well. As an advocate, if you could do your magic advocate button, what's top of mind for you for change in Australia as it relates to breast cancer and metastatic cancer and male breast cancer? I think probably more funding for the right drugs to get here is important. As I said, I think more emphasis on metastatic breast cancer patients and the the way that the disease is dealt with i think it, it's put on a level of with all the pink stuff it's a, it's frivolous to me i think it's a, it might work on a marketing point of view but it excludes men it excludes people that don't think it's fun and i think the debate's been taken away from the patient and put into the hands of charities and government departments i think we need to reclaim the space we need to get back and say we're the patients this is what we want listen to us we couldn't agree more rod thank you so much for joining us Next up, we visit Dr. Fatima Cardozo in Lisbon, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And Dr. Cardoza is one of the leading lights in NBC Oncology and Research. Without further delay, here she is. Hello, everyone. My name is Fatima Cardozo. I'm a medical oncologist, and I'm an expert in breast cancer, actually fully dedicated to breast cancer almost from the beginning of my oncology career. I'm also the director of the breast unit at the Chambalimo Clinical Center in Lisbon, Portugal. And I'm also the president of the Advanced Breast Cancer Global Alliance. I started this advocacy role many years ago. Actually, it started in the early 2000s with the publication of two important surveys. One of them was called Silent Voices, and the other one was a similar survey about the needs of metastatic breast cancer patients. And at that time, the surveys showed that these women would feel totally alone, so abandoned by physicians, researchers, media, and even from the advocacy world. And so they felt lost among all the messages of the pink movement. They couldn't feel themselves involved in that because unfortunately it's a different situation. So I was very much touched by both the Silent Voices and the Breach survey, and I wanted to do something about it. And so I start thinking on what was done with early breast cancer that really made a difference and change the outcome of this disease and make it one of the best success stories in oncology. And I looked into that and thought, okay, what have we done correctly? And of course, screening and early detection was fundamental for that, but also access to very good treatments and access to treatments according to guidelines so that people would not do something according to their own opinion but would follow evidence-based medicine. So the idea behind the creation of the ABC movement was really to bring those uh, advances in early breast cancer, bring them to the metastatic setting, saying metastatic patients also have the right to be treated by a multidisciplinary, specialized, high-quality team 
and also have the right to be treated only with evidence-based treatments. We have listeners all over the world now, but majority are from the United States or Canada, where we talk about metastatic breast cancer and not advanced breast cancer. Why do you think there's a difference in terminology globally? And do you think it matters? Oh, I think it is important and it matters. We have to understand each other. The reason why we chose advanced breast cancer was to include metastatic and also another small group of patients that feel even more lost. These are the locally advanced inoperable breast cancer patients. Fortunately, these cases are not so frequent in the U.S. and in many of the high-income countries, but they are very frequent in low-middle-income countries. And this locally advanced inoperable means that the situation in the breast and in the armpits, so in the axilla, are so advanced that they cannot be approached by surgery but they still don't have distant metastasis. So the, the disease has not yet gone to other organs. So they are not yet metastatic, but they are also not early breast cancer. And we wanted to include those because many of the principles for metastatic disease apply to this situation as well. So advanced breast cancer includes metastatic and locally advanced. You're quoted as saying the following, in an incurable setting such as advanced breast cancer, issues of quality of life and safety profile are of utmost importance. What do you think is the best way or ways to improve the quality of life for people living with MBC? I think that one very first thing for us to discuss and, and to think about is how do we measure quality of life? Uh, I think that is a, probably one of the biggest challenges for the metastatic setting. I think that most of your listeners would know that many trials have also as a secondary endpoint quality of life. But the tools that are used to measure quality of life, they were developed for early breast cancer. And they don't take into consideration the impact of having an incurable disease the impact of having to have always some form of treatment. And all that has an impact psychologically, but also physically, and so impacts in your quality of life. That's why one of the projects we're doing in the Global Alliance is to develop a specific tool to measure quality of life in this setting. Because very often we listen to presentations that say, oh, there was no difference between the two treatments. Mm -hmm. But in our clinical practice, we know that's not true. And from the patient experience, we also know that's not true. So we are not measuring properly. What is the NBC landscape like in Portugal and in Europe overall? And are there opportunities for advocates to get together like they do in the United States? The way that advocates work, not just in the U.S., but in most of the English-speaking countries, is really an extraordinary example for other countries. In many of the European countries, particularly in Latin countries like Portugal and Spain and France, there's not a lot of tradition into this involvement of the patient. I think that is changing, but it's changing very slowly. It would be great to have a bigger involvement of patients and of society in speaking up uh, about the needs of the patients. That's one of the things we try to do with the ABC Global Alliance. We also have a 
dedicated conference for metastatic breast cancer. It's called ABC, takes place in November. What we do there, besides discussing what has research brought to us, we also develop guidelines. The international guidelines on how to treat metastatic disease are developed at that conference. Then they can be taken all over the world, adapted, because unfortunately accessibility is different in different areas of the world. If everywhere in the world patients are treated according to guidelines, survival will improve substantially. Even if you don't have access to the latest, more expensive drugs, there are so much more that you can do with not so expensive drugs for as long as you do it with evidence-based medicine. So what I'm hoping is that all countries in Europe would join the effort of the Global Alliance and that we all together fight for the rights of metastatic breast cancer patients. Do you feel that the European Union does a good job of sharing information amongst countries to improve standard of care for oncology? and for metastatic breast cancer patients specifically? So I think there is a, a will to do that. We are going through a very important phase in Europe. We had, for the first time, an European cancer plan. So that is the first time we have ever had a cancer plan that is from all European community countries. It's very interesting. I think you and, and your listeners should know that we have that because the European Commissioner for Health is a patient advocate. The president of Europa Donna, which is one of the biggest advocacy groups for breast cancer in Europe. Her name is Stella Kiriakidis and it took a woman and a patient advocate to write the first European cancer plan. We are now moving to the implementation of this cancer plan in the individual member states. Perhaps what I can explain for someone who's US-based is that you also have a federal government, but then you have all your state governments, right? And here is even more complex because these are individual countries. So you can have a plan that comes from the commission, but it's in the individual country that has to implement it. We have to fight a lot for the cancer plan to have something for metastatic cancers, not just for metastatic breast, but all metastatic cancers. I'm happy to tell you that there is something there for metastatic cancers. So now we have to fight for that piece not to be forgotten when we go for the implementation. Regarding quality, the European Commission Initiative for Breast Cancer, that initiative has a quality of care certification process. It's still volunteer, but it allows people to know that the centers who have gone through that process of certification have a higher quality of care for both early and metastatic breast cancer so that patients are empowered when they choose in their countries where they want to be treated. So I think this is a good moment in Europe. A lot of initiatives we just need to involve the society and the patients' organizations not to miss this opportunity. I think a lot of our American listeners would be surprised to hear that in Europe, the land of what we think is great universal healthcare actually confronts this issue of metastatic breast cancer patients not getting the care that they may need on financial grounds. The health systems are very different from European country to European country. I live in Portugal and we have... A 
seven national health system, similar to the UK. To be honest, the more I travel, the more I'm convinced that we have one of the best health systems in the world. Nevertheless, even the best ones have limitations, and usually the limitations come from money issues. I think the healthcare professionals, particularly the physicians, also need to pay more attention to these things because there's a lot of wasted resources. We can also be part of the solution by prioritizing, not wasting resources so that we have sufficient money in the national health system to provide the best treatments to all patients. There's a change in mentality that is necessary in healthcare from everyone that is involved, from the patient to the politician to the healthcare professional. When I was a young doctor, I heard my mentors say, oh, I don't want to discuss finances. I'm a doctor. I just discuss science. My generation cannot do that anymore because everything is linked. So don't spend in unnecessary exams, unnecessary treatments, unnecessary visits to the hospital, but really concentrate on what is useful because then you will be improving the lives of patients. What is the perception and what do you wish people understood about metastatic breast cancer in your country and in Europe? I think it is the same everywhere in the world is that they would understand that it's different from early breast cancer. When you start talking about the needs for metastatic breast cancer patients, people say, oh, breast cancer has a lot of attention and you have all these achievements in breast cancer. You don't need more resources for breast cancer. Let's focus on other types of cancer. People don't understand the difference between early breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. And when you say breast cancer, they think of the pink movement and everything that has been achieved around the world. The most common cancer is breast cancer. One third of those will have metastatic disease. So that is our continuous fight. I think in every country is for people to understand that these are two different realities. Thank you, Dr. Cardozo. We could listen to you for hours, but we don't have the time. Our co-hosts, Lisa Ladugo and Sheila McLone, speak to Chris Shakunure and Leslie Kalani-Glenn to learn what life is like with MBC in Nigeria and Kenya. Hi, my name is Chris Chukunyere, and I'm calling in from Nigeria. My name is Leslie Kailani-Glenn, and I'm calling in from the state of Oregon. Leslie is the founder of Project Life, and I met Chris through Shante, and we started a Tamani breast cancer group or organization that originally started out at Kenya, but Shante died last year. But Chris has been a wonderful asset. I'm a public health practitioner and a breast cancer advocate. I've been a breast cancer advocate for about eight years now, and I design and implement projects around breast cancer, trying to ensure that we provide access to healthcare, especially in Nigeria and across some parts of Africa, because the burden of breast cancer here is huge. So we're trying to do our best to ensure that we actually help to make the burden lighter. And we also work with a couple of advocates as well to make sure that we continue to do the work and spread our efforts across the country. As a little boy, I grew up 
to see my auntie die a very painful death and as a child i had to ask what was wrong with auntie and they said she had colon cancer that was about the first time i heard about the word cancer and then a couple of years down the line as a graduate and someone who had started becoming interested in breast cancer i met my wife was at that time she was my friend and we got talking i saw that she was really passionate about breast cancer and she was doing a couple of work around around breast cancer and i asked her what is the motivation behind what you do and she said that she lost her mom to breast cancer so i need to research some more to find out why people would have this and the stories around it especially in nigeria wasn't really a nice one. And in 2019, I got a, a fellowship program to come to the U.S. And my host organization was Susan G. Komen. And it was really something that I was really excited about because I would have the opportunity to learn and also to pass over some values that are, and some skills that I've also learned to trying to do breast cancer work in Nigeria. And Susan G. Komen wasn't only just doing breast cancer work in the U.S., but in Africa like in Zambia, in Tanzania. So it was an opportunity to actually see a global perspective. So we had the opportunity to at least organize two in-person conferences before the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was the Metastatic Breast Cancer Symposium. That was actually where I met Shante. It's been, it was a very great experience for me having to be in the U.S. and also to just understand how the breast cancer program in the U.S. is run as compared to what we have in Africa. And so for me, that experience gave me a different perspective to it. So right now, I'm not thinking as an African who has just an African experience about breast cancer, but then I'm thinking as a global advocate who has not just an African perspective to it but also an international perspective to it. So I came back to Nigeria and I continue with my nonprofit organization and I'm also doing that work and also raising some young social impact leaders who are also breast cancer advocates, who are also passionate about carrying out the work. So we are multiplying the effort and all of the trainings that I got in the U.S., I'm actually transferring it. So Leslie, tell us about Project Life and how you got involved with the cancer community, like the cancer community that Chris is building, but in other countries as well in Africa. So Project Life is a virtual wellness house for those that are living and thriving with metastatic breast cancer and for their loved ones. So the caregivers are also invited to be a part of this wellness house. And it is global, Chris. So even patients and caregivers from Nigeria are more than welcome to join. We launched Project Life back in March of 2021. And my background with getting connected with Faraja Cancer Trust support in Kenya started with my involvement with another organization called A Fresh Chapter. And two years ago, I applied to be a fellow, which would take us into Kenya where we were going to write a cancer survival curriculum for the Kenyan people. And then the pandemic happened. So we weren't able to go and hopefully we'll actually be able to go next year in 2022. So we took it online and we met with a cohort of Kenyans and also a cohort from the United States. And we spent a year writing survivorship 
survivorship cancer program for the Kenyan people. And I have traveled a lot and have done different mission work in different countries. And one of the things that I think when people maybe identify with is that, oh, here come all the Americans who have all the answers. But really what happens is that when you start talking with people from different cultures and different languages, is that it is us that learn from the people that we actually want to serve. And I fell in love with the Kenyan people and their ability to be transparent and to be real and to be open and to teach us all about how cancer is perceived in Kenya, where 80% of cancer diagnoses are always diagnosed late stage. So there's a stigma that goes on around cancer in Africa. And And we want to try to break that for those that are living, especially with late stage disease, so that they feel like they don't have a death sentence wrapped around them or that other people see them as they are dying. My specialty is therapeutic arts. Philip Odio, who is my contact in Kenya, he caught wind of what I do and what my passion is. And he said, will you please do it for our cancer centers? And there's two cancer centers, one in Nairobi and one in Eldoret. And Philip and I, for the past year, have organically trying to put something together that makes sense because we have to do it all virtually right now. But hopefully one day I'll be able to pack up my art supplies and actually go there and do it in person. You talked about the stigma about cancer. Is it breast cancer that there's a stigma or is it all cancers that there's a stigma from your perspective? From my perspective and what I have learned from the Kenyan people that I have talked to is that it's all cancers. People don't want to talk about it. And it becomes a very close subject that the cancer patients themselves don't have the opportunity to really or feel like they can talk about it. Yes, um, the stigma also exists um, in Nigeria. I think it's an African thing because Africa is a highly cultural society. And a lot of times, people who get to be diagnosed with breast cancer or any form of cancer, they are seen, for some people, it's a curse from the gods. For some people, you are termed a witch. And usually, because for women, breast cancer is obvious when it gets to the late stage and the stigmatization is really there. So a lot of women or a lot of people who get diagnosed with breast cancer, for instance, they don't talk about it. So there's a culture of silence. And in fact, my mother-in-law who died of breast cancer had identified a lump. She went to the hospital, there was a surgery that was done, and then the lump was removed. But then several months down the line, she found another lump, but then she decided to keep quiet about it. At a time when they got to know that this thing has really gone bad, the the excuse she gave was she didn't want to disturb anyone. So in a community, people don't talk because there's that stigmatization. That's that costume and nobody should go near her. Nobody should talk to her. And it, by the time you get to find out about it, it's already at least stage. Are there opportunities for advocates to get together in Nigeria? 
Yes, there are actually opportunities, but they are pretty much limited. We have the Nigerian Cancer Association, which is like the general body that tries to provide direction for every cancer program in the country, Nigeria Cancer Society of Nigeria. But then specifically to breast cancer, there are a few organizations that are also organizing conferences, organizing meetings, but it's very limited. With a country that has over 200 million people, it's like less than 1%. So it's not enough. And I, I would say that there is actually no coalition of people that have come together to be able to say, okay, we are breast cancer advocates in Nigeria. That would actually give us a strong force. And I'm actually thinking in that direction and to form a coalition and we can actually provide direction and ensure that whatever thing we are doing is amplified and we can actually be able to reach a lot more people. When I came back from the US, I decided that, you know what, I'm going to raise young non-profit leaders, people who are actually passionate about creating so local solutions in their communities. So I tried to look for those who are passionate about breast cancer and then work with them and see how we can fund some of the ideas and some of the projects they have in their communities. Last month, we had a young lady who was a part of the cohort that we provided seed grants for. It was like $100. It wasn't much, but it would do something in the community and will mentor you and teach you how to raise one for your project so that you can be independent enough to be able to implement projects on your own. And so she was able to raise quite a lot of money to be able to implement that project. She, she was able to reach over 250 women. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she, she took advantage of a gathering that we used to call August meeting. So women from the cities, they come back to their village community in August and they have a meeting. So it's like the entire women in the village that can afford to come back home. So it was a great opportunity to have over 200 women seated in one place and she was able to talk to them about breast cancer. What's that access to care in Nigeria for someone who suspects that they have breast cancer? First of all, Nigeria is a developing country and access to healthcare generally is, is still not where it should be. Generally, access to healthcare is still a challenge because usually most of the developments that happen in a place like Nigeria happen in the cities or in the urban communities. So the best or the government hospital that is like the tertiary institutions or health institutions that have all of the best consultants in Nigeria are found in the urban settlements or in the cities. And most times you have just one, maximum two of those tertiary institutions. And it's not compared to the population. For instance, Lagos is has a population of about 20 million people, and you have just about two institutions with specialists and specialties that serve the entire state. So that's not enough. A lot of people pay out of pocket, except you have a, a good job <laughs> on the average. You have a good job where you have a health insurance. And in fact, unemployment in Nigeria is high. So you don't have a lot of people who have access to health insurance. Nigeria economy is driven by private businesses. And those people who have their own businesses don't really think about health insurance because they're trying to grow their business and they don't think it's something that they should do. So most times they pay out of pocket. Generally, access to healthcare is poor for the average person. But then specifically to breast cancer care is very limited. In a state, you may not have just one place where you can say this is a government institution where we can actually go 
to access healthcare when it comes to breast cancer. So if the average woman who is in the rural community is diagnosed with breast cancer or feels that she's feeling some pains and she needs to go to the hospital, first of all, the poor or the average person has a poor health-seeking behavior because they think that they can't afford to go to the hospital because hospital is expensive. So most times, even people can die out of disease as simple as malaria because they think that I don't have to go to the hospital because I don't have the money and it's expensive. And some, the group of people who uh, can't afford to go to the hospital, but then we have the people we call the local pharmacists. They are the local pharmacists. And then there are also other people who we call the chemists. The chemists are those who are not trained to be pharmacists, but then they probably have been under mentorship with the pharmacist and they've learned one or two things. And then they can actually make some medication for you when you feel a certain way. So there are people who actually go to that because they feel the hospital is expensive. There are some people who think the traditional medicine and herbs can actually deal with my breast pain. So they decide to go that route. So a woman who is in the rural community has to travel maybe two, three hours by road mm -hmm. and sometimes four hours to get to the city. And they get to the city, they are confused about how to even navigate the process of trying to see a doctor. So you can spend all day, there's a lot of crowd because the population is higher than the, the capacity that a hospital can actually take. So there's a lot of crowd out there. So you go there the first day, you can't see a doctor and you go back home. So when you do that two times and you don't even have money to take a transportation to that place, you, if you get there and you, you stay all day, you don't even have a place to sleep. So that's already discouraging. The barriers are a lot. So you just end up, you know what, let me look for other ways to take care of this. So that's why we have the incidence rate in Africa, in Nigeria, is lower than the Western world. But then the mortality rate is higher. And in fact, in sub-Saharan Africa, the mortality rate is actually the highest at the moment because most people report at this stage. So even at the moment, we can't really find adequate data on metastatic breast cancer. But oncologists in Nigeria have said that most people report at late stage and there are about 70 to 80% of them. Leslie, what is the most surprising outcome thus far in your recent activities with the community in Kenya? Yeah, just with my short amount of time of working with the Kenyans, one thing that stood out to me is that here in the U.S., there's a divide between early stage and late stage cancer. But there in Kenya, from my conversations, it's just breast cancer. There's no stages assigned to it. Another one of the things that has been very surprising to me was the hunger for programs and for integrative oncology in Kenya. We did a two-month virtual therapeutic art program. I had them put in the chat where they were from and if they were a thriver or a cancer survivor. And 90% of them were therapists, social workers, and psychologists. There was maybe only three actual breast cancer patients on the call at that time. So I'm going to write a curriculum for the therapist and I will come back 
train you on therapeutic art and how to implement this in your own communities. So we did that and I had over 150 therapists sign up for it. Can patients get a second opinion? The group of people who would likely go for a second opinion are those who are really educated to some extent about breast cancer. And they can actually afford to go to the private hospitals, maybe, to seek for a second opinion. So for the average person or the average woman, they respect the diagnosis of a doctor. So when a doctor says, this is what is wrong with you, they run with it. And there's a perception here that breast cancer is a disease of the rich because it is super expensive because the care is limited. But for us here, self-breast examination is very critical. It is very important because a lot of women naturally will not go to the hospital. If there is one thing that you wish people in Nigeria knew about breast cancer or late-stage breast cancer, what would it be? Yeah, so it's not a death sentence. That's the first thing. The second thing would be to say that we all need to be advocates of ourselves first. We need to take care of our bodies and we need to speak up when it comes to breast cancer. We need to speak up when it comes to late stage um, breast cancer. We need to speak up. And for the government, (laughs) I would like you to know (laughs) that's a responsibility to actually help to provide this level of care. It's a basic it's a basic thing for the average person. Here, we're still also speaking true to power. And that's why on our own part, we're trying to work with young people who have the capacity to actually speak true to power in the sense of, in the sense that they can actually use social media, they can use their ideas, they can use their outreaches to actually keep talking about this and the importance of providing um, adequate health care for the average person. Thank you so much, Chris and Leslie. And I just love the engagement of young people in this effort. Finally, for our last interview, co-host Natalia Green jets over to England to speak to Joe Taylor on what the issues are for individuals living with NBC over there. I was diagnosed with primary breast cancer 14 years ago. I was on maternity leave, so I was 38 with a five-month-old little girl and nearly two-and-a-half-year-old son. And it was a a, a massive, huge, ginormous shock to me because we had no one in the family at all who had breast cancer. I started when you diagnosed. It was just unbelievable to me. It was breastfeeding. I thought I'd done everything right. I had two children who had both breastfed. All these things that you hear about breastfeed do the best. And uh, very healthy, always exercised, dieted, kept a decent weight. So I didn't think I was like a high-risk person to get breast cancer. So I ended up having surgery. I took the decision to go and see somebody else who'd had a specific reconstruction. And that started the advocacy work off because I wasn't offered a choice. It was literally, you have a mastectomy and that's it. And I thought, why don't I get a choice when I know other people have various choices. So ended up having a a, a different kind of reconstruction to just a a mastectomy, but chemotherapy and uh, radiotherapy after. And then because of my age, because I was 38, I had 
then five years of treatment. I had like checks every six months. And again, nobody ever talked about metastatic disease. I had an idea about it, but nobody really talked about it. And it was really only through meeting people on Twitter and the American advocates who brought that into the forefront of my mind, thinking about metastatic disease and what does that mean and what do I need to be aware of? And that's when then I decided to create the the website and also created the infographic. I got told that people don't want to know about that. People don't want to know metastatic disease. And I was thinking, yeah, I do need to know about it because I need to be um, empowered myself. I think knowledge is power. And that's why I ended up creating the infographic, which is now recognised in the NHS system in in England. The NHS system Joe is referring to is the National Health Services in England, which is the public-funded healthcare system. And it's actually used within an end-of-treatment summary report for Greater Manchester Cancer and the people using it across the world, really. So seven years later, I found a lump in my neck, and that's, again, only through a friend of mine finding a, a similar kind of thing. And it just made me think, um, oh, better check. And I checked my neck, I found a lung, then I found four. And two weeks later, I was re-diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. We call it secondary breast cancer in England. And, and I think that's what people, again, find really confusing because there's not one name for it. So, yeah, I was re-diagnosed and it was in the um, lymph nodes in the neck and two very small. And this is the first time I'd heard of this name, which was called oligometastatic disease. So two small spots in the sternum. According to cancer.gov, Oligometastatic is a type of metastasis in which cancer cells from the original tumor travel through the body and form a small number of new tumors in one or two other parts of the body. And I then decided to change oncologists, wanted a new oncologist because the oncologist who I had didn't really want to treat it aggressively and I wanted it treated aggressively. So I found somebody who I was already knowledgeable about who would be able to support me in that, in what I wanted. So again, I think in England, I think people are in the UK, people don't think that they have a choice of doing something different. Whereas in in America or in other countries, because it's private healthcare, you always have that, I'm paying for you. So I will choose who I want. In England, it's, you know, because we've got the National Health Service and it's free. It's a free service that that is provided. Don't think people realise that you can actually do that and you can. So say, for example, if I didn't like the oncologist or I didn't like the surgeon, we didn't click, then, yeah, you can actually find something else. But I think what happens is the NHS make it quite awkward or difficult to actually find other people. And that was why I was creating ABC Diagnosis, because I wanted to signpost to different areas so that people could find these things a bit better and a bit easier. What Um, is the type of feedback you would get if you would want to change a different provider? Some people are absolutely fine with it. Some people have found the resistant. Why do you want to change? It's like, but it's my priority to change. I can do that. But yeah, I I think they find it as if it's um, a personal insult to them, even though it may be just because you don't click. Not everybody gets on in life, do they? And you want somebody who has got your back as well as you feel comfortable in talking to them because you've got this person really for 
the rest of your life is a massive thing that you've got to get on with that person, I think. And Joe, you'd mentioned before that no one wanted to talk about secondary breast cancer. Do you know what the percentage of people getting primary breast cancer that turns into secondary breast cancer? Yeah, it was drilled in a lot through the advocates in America. So around about 30% of people okay. will at some point metastasize. So each breast cancer type is different. And again, that's what people don't understand. They don't even always understand the, the diagnosis. And that's pretty shocking right. that they're, they're not aware of that. They don't know uh, even the breast cancer type. And I see it too many times, I've heard it from too many people that they thought they were okay. And then suddenly they had problems with this or that. These are their issues. And then they go to the GP and the GP's out of work. And then they get assailed by a GP because they get told, oh, it's just old. You know, I got told that with aches and pains. Oh, it's because you're over 40. What? On tamoxifen. That's making you like this. People don't need to be told things like that I think they need to be told the reality you know this is what happens this is what could happen yes 70% of people will probably you know be cured but we don't know who the 30% are going to be and that's the issue they don't know who these people are going to be but but you need to be aware of red flag symptoms like red flag symptoms there's a preventative care Joan mentions IBH, inhalation breath hold technique, used by the patient if they are getting radiation therapy near their heart. She's familiar with the technique, and during a Zoom meeting, she's made aware that a local hospital is not using this technique. She took it upon herself to lead a campaign on social media. And it went higher up into the into the, at the hospital where I was at. Right. And to cut a long story short, I had a meeting with Action Radiotherapy and, and the trust actually then decided to, and this was approved, an approved technique through NICE, which is where you get drug approval. So the technique okay. of deep inhalation breath hold uh, was approved. And, and it was actually approved <laughs> around, I think, 10 hospitals then because I'd made this complaint. Oh, so my gosh. They, they had to fork out about £2 million. That's amazing, though, that just something that you knew that wasn't practiced. Um, That's advocacy work for you. Yeah, you see it unfold right in front of you. That's like the yeah. best thing an advocate could, could hope for is that what they said made a difference. Which yeah. brings me to my next question is what is metastatic breast cancer landscape like in your country and are there opportunities for advocates to get together is there training or how does one become an advocate so i think a lot of advocates learn themselves to advocate but there are other things there are opportunities to actually be trained as an advocate but within the uk we don't really do anything like that the group that i've set up which i'm founder of as well as abcd founded met up uk so met up is in america beth caldwell was a good friend of mine and i asked her before she died could we uh, create a uk as met up she said yeah that's brilliant i created met up uk so we do have a group of people there who are advocates activists and campaigners and but we're, we're not trained as advocates and I think that is something that we are going to look at as a group to possibly do which would be really good. Do you find that oncologists are open to talk about clinical trials and? Depends. 
it really depends. You've got cancer centres who will be running big trials, but then you've got smaller hospitals in between. And it's very much like it probably in America. It is small little hospitals who are not doing those. I know some oncologists don't like referring to clinical trials or they find it too much hassle for clinical trials because it's taken a lot of time and effort that that patient then is going off into a different setting. You may find that your oncologist isn't supportive of a clinical trial, but you want to find a clinical trial. And it's actually finding that information. And you're in a sea of information and patients don't always understand what they're looking for. Right. So how are those patients who are not as may not have the knowledge or the experience of an advocate to actually find something like that? That is so wrong. Everybody should have the same ability to have or find this information out. I hear so many stories about different ways of being being treated in England with with the NHS and and there is a private healthcare system. People do get different treatments there, treatments that are not accessible on the NHS. So we have a two tier system, very much like in America. So everybody is saying, "Oh, wonderful NHS!" Actually, it, it's quite poor, really, how we have this. And I think until somebody is in the system with metastatic disease, they don't realise it's different with primary because there is a standard Mm -hmm. and there's data collected. Let's get on to that. There's data collected for them. (laughs) Then when you've got metastatic disease, there's no data. So is that why they don't care about their outcomes? Because they're not, they're, they're, they don't have that system where the, the, it's counted. We're only counted when we've had primary disease and, we, and when we're dead. Beth Caldwell got what got me onto this and thinking, right. what happens in England? What happens in the UK? They don't really quite understand why that number is relevant. It's it's because funding goes into where it's needed and where the numbers are up. So if we're undercounted, they won't prioritize us. Absolutely. It's exactly the same. In the NHS, they struggle. I'm sure it's no different in the UK as it is in the States, but when you're finding support for secondary breast cancer, is that accessible? How do you find the charities out there? They do signposting to different areas. They do support as well. But then there are separate little groups. Within the UK, there are different areas of support. And when you've got metastatic breast cancer, you've got to find your the people who are, you know, most important to you and have the best knowledge, the best information. And it's really hard to find a lot of the time. But there are groups out there, whether they're on Facebook, whether they're on Twitter, wherever they are, you can actually find people. But I think most of the time, it's other advocates that signpost you to groups. I want to move back to the cultural sense in your country about what the perception is about having NBC. Do people talk about it, even those who have it? I think the perception is that everybody lives and you're curable and the general public do not understand metastatic secondary advanced stage four. It is a complete and utter misconception. I still have friends now saying, so when do you finish treatment? I've been on it seven years, I don't. So there's that perception. Whenever a new drug comes out, they just think everybody can have it and everything's great because everybody's got these access to drugs. And again, they don't understand that there are certain lines of treatment and not everybody gets that drug. You talked about tagging people and using social media for the DIBH stuff. And I know that you're pretty active and a lot of advocates are active, particularly on Twitter. How has social media changed the game for you? 
And how has it globalized our community? And, and, and where do you see the pros and cons? Massively helped me to uh, get messages out. I think social media, if you use it, it has a huge reach to the world. I am literally, I have, I've got an oncologist, there's oncologists over in Australia who use my infographic. It, it's gone, things have gone global. So it's definitely empowered me. And it's not just the fact that you're connecting with patients. I'm connecting with clinical people across the world, surgeons, oncology, all types of specialist people. What's your favorite thing about England or about being English? <laughs> to me, it's just the people. I'm a Northern person. I don't know whether you know about accents. So the different types of people and how they get your, whether you get jokes and things like that, your personality <laughs> and everything. It, it's totally different throughout England and throughout the UK. And you connect with people who've got a similar kind of sense of humour. And I think sense of humour is a great way to get through things. And especially with cancer, I can have a bit of a dark sense of humour as well as fun things that go on. And I, I think I'm a bit of a child in that way because I do like silly things as well as obviously we're sharing really important stuff here. That's what I like about England. A very special thank you to our guest, Vesna Zikote from Canada, Eiko Brody, representing Japanese Share, Dr. Rania Azmi of Kuwait and Egypt, Rod Ritchie from Australia, Dr. Fatima Cardozo, Director of the Breast Unit of the Shambhalamad Clinical Center in Lisbon, Portugal, Chris Chikunyere of Nigeria, and Leslie Kailani Glenn of Project Life and her work in Kenya, and finally, Joe Taylor from England. Given the number of guests on this episode, we were unable to fully outline the many incredible accomplishments, organizations, and initiatives that these individuals have accomplished and are a part of. Please do check out our episode page on our website to find out more. And thank you to you, our listeners, for grabbing your carry-on bags and joining us for this special look at NBC around the world. We have dedicated our work on this podcast to the memory of our friend and co-host, Shante Randall, who died this past November 2020. Shante was a firecracker advocate who, in the short 19 months or so that she lived with this disease, she looked beyond herself every day to others dealing with the same thing, not only here in the United States, but in Kenya as well. We want to remind our listeners that we're gathering stories, names, remembrances of the people who've died this past year from NBC. Our Re-Remember episode is dedicated to the 116 people who die each day in the United States from this disease. Please send in the names and stories of the people you want remembered by October 13th through our website's contact page rmbclife.org or you can just send us a sound bite via email to rmbclife at sharecancersupport.org This episode was the brainchild of our senior producer Anne Woodward and was produced by me Lisa Laudico and Natalia Green We were helped by Sheila McGlone and Miranda Gonzalez and our intern team Expert sound design by Samantha Silverstein including all original music our executive producer is Kristen Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. 
Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website. Sign up for our news blast at rmbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.